Now, David casts a shadow of the Messiah. Many times what you'll find in the Bible is that characters in the Old Testament will cast a shadow of the coming Messiah. One I can think of in particular is Joseph. Joseph's response to his brothers when he finally reveals himself late in the book of Genesis is, I am Joseph. And the whole time he had been hiding his identity and put his brothers through the paces. And his brothers may have expected at that point that Joseph would say, get out of my sight. I want nothing to do with you. You sold me into slavery. You betrayed me. I am your flesh and blood. But Joseph does just the opposite. He says, I'm your brother. And don't be angry with yourselves for what you did to me. For God sent me to this place ahead of you to spare life. Indeed, to spare the 12 tribes from one of those tribes, the Messiah would come. His name is Jesus. He's from the tribe of Judah. David, in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, also casts a shadow of the Messiah. And it's been a long struggle for David. He's been anointed as the king, unexpectedly, the youngest of seven or eight. You know, the prophet came to the house and said, you know, surely this must be the one. Surely this must be the one. Nope, 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 nope. Hey, do you have any more kids around? Well, there's one out in the field. He's kind of ruddy, which means he had red hair. So every, every one of you who have red hair, praise the Lord. David did as well. He had beautiful eyes. He was a strong young man. But his strength was really in his relationship with the Lord. And God said of David, that is a man after my own heart. Don't look on the outside, for God does not judge things on the outside. He looks where? At the heart. And David was God's king. And, and, and in this way, David, this is one of many ways, and he, and he doesn't do it perfectly. We, we know David's going to have his problems, and he's going to have his shortcomings, he does not perfectly cast the shadow of the Messiah, for no human being can. <laughs> Amen? But there is some typology there. And think with me now. We all know David is the man after God's own heart, but the ultimate man after God's own heart is Jesus. I always do those things that please my Father. Not sometimes, not most of the time, not 75% of the time. I always do what pleases my father. I'm trying to tip the scales over 50%. How many of you are in the same boat? I want to do his will all the time, Paul says, but I find another law in my members, right? I'm in a battle. And the book of 2 Samuel is really about a conflict. It's about who will accept the king, the true king, and not everybody's going to accept him, and not right away. In fact, uh, if you look at the chronology of David's life, it may have taken as much as 20 years for him to finally rule over all of Israel. Think about it, 20 years. You say, why? Because God was trying to show something else in the elevation and the ascending of David to the throne that it's not easy. And to think about the shadow, not everybody accepts Jesus as their king. Would you agree? We have a world around us right now that many of them spend their lives to try to debunk the Bible and debunk Jesus, though they're doing a very poor job because they don't want to accept him. We will not have this man to rule over us, they say. But Jesus is the king. And to him, how many knees? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is King or Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a great scene in the Lord of the Rings movies where Boromor has been struck by multiple arrows and he lay dying. Aragon gets to him. The Return of the King, I think, is the, the movie the, of the trilogy there. And as Boromor is dying, he looks at Aragon, who's come upon him, and says, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. I would have followed you anywhere. This is the passion of the people of the kingdom of God. 
And I wonder how we're all doing. Do you ever come to the end of the week and say, well, let's see, how well did I follow my king this week? How much time did I spend thinking about the king and the kingdom? And how, many, how much time did I spend thinking about me and my kingdom? Hmm. You know, modern day evangelicalism has to fight this selfish tendency that we all have and sometimes we feed it that the church is about us and about what we can get out of it. No, that's not what the Christian life's about. The Christian life is about following your king wherever he calls you to go, whatever he calls you to do, wherever he calls you to be. And so we pick up the account. Your kingdom come is the message. 2 Samuel 2 verse 1. Then it came about afterwards, if you have an NIV, it says in the course of time that David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. So David said, where shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. Now David inquired of the Lord after or afterwards or in the course of time. This is, of course, just looking at the chronology, what just happened is Saul has died on the battlefield. His sons have died with him. There's only one son remaining. We're going to meet him in this text. His name is Ishbosheth. That may be a nickname. We'll talk about that in a second. This son was not with Saul on the battlefield. Saul and Jonathan and his other sons died on the battlefield. And so David has led the nation in mourning for Saul. You remember that was the end of chapter one that we looked at. And he taught them the song of the bow. And he lamented Saul and lauded Saul for the good things that he had done, not the poor things, not the bad decisions. And he had taken the nation through grieving, which is something a leader has to do. Right now, we have a lot of things going on in the world, a lot of problems, a lot of difficulties, and leaders are put in a position to try to take people through grief and loss. I think of President Bush, who, you know, after 9-11 was standing out there by the rubble and tried to address the nation really with a, a bullhorn in his hand, trying to cheer us on and encourage us that life could continue. And David was in that same situation you know, the king had fallen and not everybody knew about the weaknesses of Saul. They wanted a king like all the other nations had a king and now they had him and now he was dead. You think about the assassination of a president or a world leader and that's how the nation was feeling. Not everybody knew about David. Yeah, he had been celebrated about, you know, killing his 10,000s and taking on Goliath, but not everybody knew all the details you know, David was pretty much secretly anointed in his father's house when he was young. And now David's been on the run from Saul for a long time, uh, a long stretch of years, and finally Saul has died. But not at the hands of David. David would not kill Saul. He would not touch God's anointed. David waited for God to do the work. Isn't it so hard to wait? <laughs> Imagine that you know you're in line to be the king and you may be feeling like, man, I could be a much better leader than this guy. But the Lord says, you wait. Because God was doing something in David in that time as well. He was doing something in the nation. We are called to wait on the Lord. Now David, as he laments Saul, he then inquires of the Lord. This is something that Saul failed to do, but David inquired of the Lord and said, shall I go up? You may be asking, how did this happen? By what means did God speak to David? In 1 Samuel, there's two primary ways that we see that God speaks to David. One is through the ephod. Some of you say, what is an ephod, Pastor Michael? An ephod is the garment of a priest and often... For the high priest alone, he would have the stones of the 12 tribes next to his heart. He would have what's called the mysterious Urim and Thummim. We don't know how it worked. All we have is conjecture. Some people say stones would light up. We don't know for sure. But it would be nice on some weeks to have an ephod around, wouldn't it? Can I get a witness? This is some of our... Hardest things in the Christian life. Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I go up? Should I not? Should I stay or should I go now? Which was a song many years ago. If I go, there will be trouble. If I stay, it will be double. 
Come on, let me know. <laughs> all right, that's enough. So we all wonder by what means. And there's other places in the Old Testament where a prophet speaks to David. So David inquires of the Lord and a prophet gives the word. Get out of this place, do this, do that. Some of you are thinking, well, how does it work today? Well, David didn't have a complete Bible like we have. And we have a couple of things that are really advantageous in the New Covenant. Number one, we have the complete Word of God, the full canon. Number two, we have the Holy Spirit living where? Inside of us. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Does that sound like a promise to you? It does to me. James in chapter 4 says, you have not because you ask not. You ask and don't receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. And all God's people said, ouch. Sometimes when we're praying, God's saying, no, that's not the direction. That's not where I want your focus. And we keep beating on that door. And sometimes God says no or wait. And we're like, God's not talking to me. Oh, he is. Sometimes we just don't want to hear the answer. Amen? Now, I know we all struggle with the specifics. Like, can I turn to a Bible passage that says, should I move to this location or not? A Bible passage that says, should I take this job or not? We're commanded to ask and seek and knock. But even in that process, what does that cause you to do? Go to your Bible. Go to prayer. That can be a healthy process. And even to say, Lord, not my will, but, hello? Yours be done. Wow. There's a lot that God does in the process when we pray. God, if you want me to do this, open a door. David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him. David is said as a contrast to Saul. We've looked at this in the past. 1 Chronicles 10, 13 says that Saul asked counsel of a medium, medium making inquiry of it. 1 Chronicles 10, 14 says, and he, Saul, did not inquire of the Lord. The most important thing to see here is that David inquired of the Lord. Do we? How many decisions do we make week in and week out where we don't even bother to ask the Lord what he would want us to do? And then when we get ourselves in a tight space, then we pray. Well, I'm all out of options, Lord, so I guess I'll gulp. Pray now. Oh, good. <laughs> Can you imagine being the Lord up in heaven looking at us? And how we deal with things. I know he's used to it by now, but still. And so David inquired. The Lord spoke to him. And this is something that makes David, of course, casting a shadow of Jesus Christ. Is that he inquired of the Lord. So David went up, verse 2, 2 Samuel 2. He went up there uh, where God directed him and his two wives. We won't talk much about his two wives, but I will say this, that Right now, David has two wives, and um, some of you are thinking, well, why does God let people get away with this? Well, they never quite get away with it. I'm sure you've probably noticed if you've read accounts where there's multiple wives in a man's life, it usually doesn't go very well. Amen? Amen. So I will say this, David was not in God's perfect will here, and later he's going to marry other women. He's going to get himself in more and more trouble. So if you find a wife, you find a very good thing. A good wife, singular, is a blessing. You multiply wives, you multiply problems. <laughs> and that's where I will leave it for this morning. You have Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And so David did go up. He did obey God in the sense that he went up. And this is, of course, what we need to do when we ask God for direction. If he gives it to us, we need to obey him. 
If he says go, go. If he says stay, stay. If he says do this, then we need to do it. And David brought up his men who were with him. These were men who had been faithful to David through all the difficulty with Saul, the hiding in caves, the battles, each with his household. And they lived in the cities of Hebron. David had loyal men who followed him to Hebron. And just a, a side note, Hebron was the city of Abraham. The oaks of Mamre were at Hebron. There's a couple of major things to think about when you think about Hebron. Number one, Hebron was the only area where Abraham actually owned a parcel of land. It was a, it was a burial plot. It was a, a place to bury his loved ones. That's the only parcel of land in the promised land that Abram actually owned. So get this, God says, everywhere you look, everywhere you step, the land is yours, but it's not gonna happen in your lifetime. Talk about patience. The only thing you're gonna own is a cemetery. Oh, come on, Lord. Just one mansion? Maybe a couple of acres would be nice. It's a big promised land. No. But the patriarchs being buried in a plot in Hebron speaks of the what? The promises from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're all there, buried there. Speaking of the promises, the second thing about Hebrew, just to take, uh, Hebron to take note of, is that it was a, a priestly city. It was a city of refuge. And what's interesting about that thought is that God would be a refuge to David, and he is a refuge to us, a refuge in the storm. We're going to have our difficulty too. We're going to have our difficulty walking after the kingdom, dealing with our own lives, trying to be faithful to what God calls us to be. And here we have a Levitical city or a city of refuge. And we have uh, the promises that link David to Hebron. Hebron is in the area of Judah, down in the south. You can think of the area of Jerusalem and, and in that area and below it. Then the men of Judah came and there, verse 4, anointed David king over the house of Judah. So remember, Judah's just in the south now. And they told David, saying, It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. So notice the men of Judah come. This may be the elders of the area. And they anointed David king. But only over what? Only over the house of Judah. What's interesting is we're going to see the seeds of the division of the kingdom come early on. Finally, under David and then Solomon, the tribes will actually unite. They will actually be one people under the leadership. But after Solomon, the, they fragment again. They are a people divided. It's the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Judah and Benjamin down here in the south, the area of Jerusalem, the Dead Sea area, and so forth. And up north, the Galilee region, the ten northern tribes. And even a nation that was supposed to be one and supposed to be a light to the Gentiles could not even be united. Sound familiar? In fact, we're about to read about a civil war in Israel. There's a civil war in the history of the United States, but there's another war going on in our country right now. And here's what it is. What do we really believe? Who are we as a people? What are our foundations and do they really matter anymore? That's a question that is uh, before us all the time. And when I talk about our foundations, I'm talking about God. I'm talking about the Bible. I'm talking about the Christian Judeo ethic. I'm talking about the things that spring from that. And so David is anointed king and he, he must have asked about Saul and what happened with the burial. And these men of Jabesh Gilead, we've, we've uh, read about them earlier. They were the ones that bravely walked all night. They came and got Saul's body and they gave him a decent burial. So David's been anointed as king, but he has to wait and wait and wait some more to be finally over the entire nation. What are some good examples of waiting? Uh, some of you had to wait a while to, how many of you were excited about getting your driver's license? I could not wait. Now, some teens in our culture seem to be a little hesitant about getting on the road. I'm not sure what's going on there. I know we're a little hesitant about them being on the road. I, I understand that. I remember one time we were, we were uh, coaching a uh, Little League All-Star team. It was 13 and 14-year-olds, and 
we were having a practice on the field and one of our players pulled up in a van. We're a little concerned because we're coaching 13 and 14 year olds. <laughs> so anyway, there you go. Some, some people don't wait, apparently. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and he said to them, may you be blessed of the Lord because you have shown this kindness to Saul, your Lord, and you have buried him. Another great thing about David's leadership is that he, he encouraged these men of Jabesh Gilead who showed bravery, risked their lives. He complimented them. And that's something that good leadership has to do as well. We need to be encouragers. And encourage means to put courage in. Discourage means to take courage out. What would you say you are, generally speaking? An encourager? Or a discourager. Well, David was an encourager. And he said, may you be blessed. You've shown loyal love. You've shown hesed. And now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you. A great prayer. And I also will show this goodness to you. David says, I'm now the king. And I'm going to do this thing to you as well. I will show it to you. You know, most people, you guys, are not going to see God's love unless they see it through you. Would you agree? Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. If you were to simplify the Christian walk, what you could just say is, Lord, let everything I do this week be done in love. Let me speak the truth in love. Let me defer in love. Let me do uh, kindly in love. Let me be careful of my words in love. And so David says to them, now therefore seven, let your hands be strong, be valiant. He puts courage into them for Saul, your Lord is dead. I know we've gone through a national tragedy and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David says, I'm your king. Be strong, be valiant. I will support you. I will bless you. But now we're about to have a swing in the story. There's a contrast with this man named Abner. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. So all of a sudden, Abner comes on the stage. Abner was Saul's commander. Abner, I don't think, liked David very much. And I think part of the reason Abner didn't like David was Saul's attitude toward David. Saul was bitter jealous, vengeful toward David. And Abner was around him all the time. There was a scene uh, in, in the uh, book of 1 Samuel where David snuck into the camp and he took Saul's, uh, I think it was his spear in the water jug, went to the other side of the mountain and said, hey! And the camp over there had been sound asleep. The language is actually from Genesis when uh, Adam was put into a sound sleep. And he called from the other side of the ridge and he said, hey, look at what I've got. Aren't you guys supposed to be guarding your king? And then he called out Abner by name. He said, Abner, apparently you're not doing your job very well. I think Abner didn't like David very much. But Abner had spent a lot of time around Saul and Saul was throwing spears at David and trying to run down David. And have you noticed, if you have a person who is in your ear about another person and continually runs them down to you, even though you don't know them, you begin to form an opinion about that person. You hear what I'm saying? When you don't even know if those are the facts. I'd be careful about people who chirp in your ear about others, who may not be giving you the straight skinny. And sometimes we have a, an opinion formed about a person before we've ever even said two words to that person. People love the gossip scene, don't they? The magazines on the rack right next to the mints. I'm just looking for mints. Oh, what's going on over there with that person? Boy, they don't look so good anymore. Right? They always put the most flattering photos in those magazines. Right? Faces contorted. Gain 10 pounds on the beach. <laughs> right? You're like, whoa, wow. How many of you ever do the, the search where you watched a TV show years ago and on the internet it pops up? What do they look like now? 
Oh, let's, let's go see what happened. Oh! <laughs> wow, because you remember what they looked like years ago. Isn't it good that nobody's doing that for us? Do you ever look at pictures? You forget what's happened to you in a decade. <laughs> you think that maybe it doesn't apply to you. And then you look at a before and after and you go, oh my goodness, what has happened to me? Time. Decay. <laughs> oh Lord, help me. And you start to celebrate that new body that's coming more and more. I don't even know how we ended up there, but anyway, let's go back to <laughs> verse 8. <laughs> Personal rant. We move on. Now, Abner was either Saul's uncle or cousin. So there was a familial connection too. And Abner, instead of going with the Lord's anointed, decided to anoint this man named Ishbosheth. Some of you are thinking, who would ever name their child Ishbosheth? Oh, it gets worse. Ishbosheth means man of shame. You're like, what? Oh, yeah. Some of you may be considering this name. I don't know. I'm just kidding. No. Well, actually, his original name was Ishbal or Baal. Write down for your notes. First Chronicles 8.33. The word B-A-A-L, Baal, can just simply mean Lord. It's a Canaanite word or master. But we all know that Baal or Baal became what? A Canaanite god. And so some Israelites apparently were, had a Baal ending on their name. I don't know all the reasons why. And so in a derogatory name, the way, the Jews would change the name and they would change the ending. And in this case, instead of him being Ish-Baal, was, it was changed to Ish-Bosheth. And, and it's something like this. That's a shameful name. Baal's a shameful name, so we'll just call you what it is. Ish is interesting because it's the name for man. So it can be man, in the original way you could define it, it could be man of the Lord or man who serves or something like that because ish is man, but it also can mean in the fire. So in the fire for the Lord or something like that, but it becomes something like a man or fire and then this ending. So fire and shame, something like that. It was a derogatory nickname. If you ever had, you know, maybe school kids when you were growing up give you a nickname that you didn't appreciate. That's kind of what we're dealing with here. And he, Abner, made him, Ishbosheth, king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Now remember, Saul and his family were from the tribe of Benjamin. So who made Ishbosheth king? Well, it was Abner. What was Abner's motivation to make Ishbosheth king? Well, here's part of it. David had a commander already. We're going to meet him. His name is Joab. And Abner, if David becomes the king, has lost his position and his job. Think about the shadow that David casts. The religious leadership of Jesus' day knew that he was the Messiah. They knew it. They could not deny his miracles. They could not deny his power. They even knew that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. But the reason that they would not accept him as their king was that he threatened what? Their positions. Their, their ability to make wealth. Their power. Many of them were in league with Rome. Rome was giving them enough flexibility where they could rip off the people with the bazaar, the, what they did in the temple area. Jesus went in there, turned over the tables. He said, this house shall be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. They said, oh, we don't like this man. They tried to question him. They tried to see if he would give proper answers. And then they asked him no more questions. Because never did a man speak like him. He shut him down every time. He put him in their place. 
And they knew who he was and they killed him anyway. In fact, that's why they killed him. Do you know that? Jesus tells a parable where he says, he puts words in their mouth where they say, this is the heir, come let us, what? Kill him. He was a threat to them. And Abner becomes a type of the religious leader. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began, when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. He's going to be assassinated. The house of Judah, however, followed David. Now here you have a divide. Here you have a nation divided. Some are following the anointed one, and some are following this son of Saul, which on a human level makes sense. The son who survived should be the king, right? Wrong. Jonathan already knew that David was the king. Jonathan's dead now. Ishbosheth has no business reigning over the people. In fact, he wouldn't even be on the battlefield with his father. Why? Was he too weak? Perhaps. Was he, did they leave him at home just in case? Maybe. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You will cling to the one and hate the other, love the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We are faced with this all the time. We have Ishbosheth over, over here, and we have David or the greater David Jesus over here, and constantly we have to decide to which king will we bow today? What throne will we bow before? Every day we have to decide. And so there's a division. Now, and, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Little debate about the timing here, but I would just say this that it may be that as wars were going on, it took some time for Ishbosheth to take the throne, but Abner did it, I don't think because of Saul's death, I think because of David's ascension. I think it's a, a counter move. Now, Abner, the son of Ner, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. This is about a 50 mile journey. They would cross the Jordan and go south with the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. So now they are moving. And Joab, now Joab is David's commander. We're going to see him take a prominent role as the book unfolds. The son of Zu, that, that person. You can write down 1 Chronicles 2.16. Zuru, I, uh, <laughs> anyway. And the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So you have the two armies now moving. How did Joab hear about Abner being on the move? I don't know. But he had set up this puppet king in this location. And David had been set up in Hebron. And one army starts moving. They cross the Jordan. They start moving south. Joab starts moving north. And we're going to have a collision. And it may be that Joab got word. It was about a 25-mile trip for Joab and the soldiers and about 50 miles for the other guys. And so they meet at a pool. This is, uh, notice, they sat down on one side of the pool and the other on the other side. So this is uh, a body of water that's there, not a pool as we would think of it today. And they're on opposite sides of a, something like a reservoir, the reservoir of Gibeon, to provide some separation in space. Looking at each other. We've all probably watched battle movies where for a while the two armies are there and you kind of wonder who's going to fire the first shot. What, what's going to be the action point? Who's going to, you know, cause the fighting to begin? And Abner takes the lead, verse 14. And he says to Joab, Now let the young men arise and hold a contest before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. So Abner says, Okay, we've looked at each other long enough. We've had our iced tea. It's time, <laughs> it's time to get up and get some action going. So let's have a contest, Okay. The word contest in Hebrew, by the way, can have the idea of entertainment. It can suggest amusement or even a lighthearted joust or competition. And so notice what happens. So they arose and went over by count 12 for Benjamin, that is Saul's side, if you will, and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. Now, there's the number 12. What do you think they may be saying with the number 12? There's 12 tribes in Israel, right? So they may be saying, look, we're going to have representatives from each group. We'll use the number 12 because both men want to be king. And so we'll have 12 from this group and 12 from that group. And let's, let's let them settle it. Almost like when David took on Goliath, right? 
We'll just let two warriors beat it out. And if we win, you become our slaves. And if you win, we'll become your slaves. It's a representative battle, but it seems to be at least implied that it might be lighthearted at first. I remember some years ago, uh, we, our youth group went out and played a broom hockey game in one of these ice rinks. Any, anybody ever play broom hockey? Oh, it's a glorious thing. Not, not really. Anyway, and so they had a ball and they had brooms and we were playing another church. And all of a sudden, what was supposed to be a friendly game of broom ball, because you know how people are very calm in competitive situations, especially Christians, right? Right? So all of a sudden, it got a little rough out there in broom ball. People were throwing shoulders. People were saying, my church is better than your church. And one of our guys, we were coaxing him to come out on the ice. And he's kind of, you know, he had a his shoes, you know, casual shoes on. And he was on the outskirts of the rink where everything's safe. And we're like, come on, come on and play. He steps onto the ice. And one of the big bruisers from this other church set his sights on him. And he hit him. And it was not a light hit. And he cascaded into the boards and broke his collarbone. Collarbone was sticking out. And Pastor Michael had to try to step in. <laughs> they were like, hey, let's calm it down. This guy's like in agony. He was on the ice for about 10 seconds at our coaxing. I include myself in that. <laughs> come on, come and play. It'll be fine. It wasn't fine. So here's what happened. The bell rang. They moved from the two sides of the pool. Somebody said, let's get ready to rumble. But each one of them, 16, seized his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. And so they fell down together, 24, dead. Seemingly in a moment of time, they fell down together. What's the one Rocky movie where they slug it out? It seems like it's never ending, punch after punch, and then they both fall down at the same time. Well, these 12 on each side put their swords through one another, and they all fell down together. They all died. Therefore, that place was called Helketh Hatsarim. It means the field of sharp edges or daggers or stone knives, which is in Gibeon. They all fell down. Now, you would think that that would be the end, right? Like, oh my goodness, look what's happened. This is, this is not good. But notice, and that day the battle was very severe and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now, the three sons of Zuriah, <laughs> I can't even say, I'm gonna work on that during services. Anyway, who was a sister of David, uh, so these are family members of David, were there. Uh, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. Asahel was, a swift, was as swift-footed as one of the gazelles which is in the field. Now they, they say that what would happen often is that a swift-footed, fast person would often be a messenger. So they would carry messages and use their speed. Well, this is what Asahel was, but Asahel pursued Abner. He, he locked his sights on Abner and he said, I, I'm going after him. I'm, I'm gonna take out their leader. He did not turn to the right or to the left from following after Abner. And Abner was moving away. The battle was not going well for him. And Asahel said, aha, I'm going to take him out. So he used his speed. Abner is trying to get away. And he, uh, you know, we would say Asahel has wheels, man. He was a fast guy. And Abner looked behind him and said, is that you, Asahel? And he answered, it is I. And so Abner said to him, turn to your right or to your left. Take hold of one of the young men for yourself. Maybe implying, you know, fight somebody who's going to be a match for you. Take his spoil. The New King James says, take his armor for yourself. It may be that he had no armor on. But Asahel was not willing to turn aside from following him. And Abner repeated again to Asahel, and he said, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? Now, Asahel was fast, but he was no match for a commander like Abner. However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear, so that the spear came out of his back. And he fell there and died on the spot. And it came about that all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. They were stunned. 
Now, back in the day when they had battle spears, they would apparently sharpen both ends. And the one end you would sharpen so you could thrust it into the ground and be able to pull it out at any time for battle. So Abner used one of the oldest tricks in the book. Esahel had this incredible speed. Abner knew he wasn't going to get away from him. So finally he stopped and Esahel was coming and he just turned the spear around and Esahel was thrust through. Battle and war is never pretty, is it? And now he lay dead. And as the others came upon him and they looked, they looked with stunned silence. And Joab and Abishai, now these are the other family members who remained, pursued Abner. You can understand, they had, they had blood in their eyes. And when the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Alma, which is in front of Gia, by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. And the sons of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner. So now other men gather. They're on the hill there. They became one band. And they stood on the top of a certain hill. And there is the brothers, Abishai, Joab and Abishai. And they've come now for the moment of truth. What's going to happen? Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? Now, Abner sounds like a reasonable guy. He's speaking peace over the situation. He's saying, look, we got to stop this fighting. That sounds good, Abner, but you're the one that started the whole thing. Have you ever noticed that sometimes people are good at stirring it up and stopping it just when they're going to be in trouble? I mean, think about it for a second. Abner was losing. The, the battle had gotten difficult. He's the one that stirred it up, and now he's the he's the the calm mind. Oh, let's stop it now, now that I might get killed. <laughs> now, now we want things to be calm. Hopefully, when we're in situations in everyday life, we don't stir it up and then try to calm it down. Amen? Now, here's going to be a little bit of a three-point message on how to resolve conflict. I pull from verse 26. Number one, take a look. Are we going to fight forever? <laughs> Look, we're going to do this on one of our upcoming 2B1 nights, but let me just say to you, if you're in a conflict with someone, somebody at some point has to say, let's take a time out. Maybe what we need to do is break for a moment from this battle because we're going to end up killing each other and let's cool down and we'll come back together and talk it out when uh, calmer heads can prevail. Everybody with me? Somebody has to say, let's take a T.O. I think that's a good practice. Number two, look at verse 26. Do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? How many conflicts do we get into where it goes back and forth and back and forth? And if we were just able to look at the end, sometimes it feels good in the moment to barb somebody back. They get you. You get them back. Ah, ah, ah. And then you start asking some bigger questions like, you know, we are married. Uh, <laughs> this is probably not going to end well. It might ruin our week a little bit. I don't know. What do you think? It'll take a couple of days. See, we get caught up in the moment and we forget that the people we love the most are not our enemies. Amen? Brenda and I, we have a wonderful marriage. We were at a family life conference. And at one point of the conference, they asked you to turn to your spouse, look them in the eye and say, you are not my enemy. Now, Brenda and I were kind of giggling because, you know, our marriage was at a good place and everything was fine. But there were some couples in the room you could cut the tension with a knife because they were sitting next to their enemy. And just the movement of the neck was hard. Hey, if this keeps going this way, it's going to be bitter in the end. How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following who? Their brothers. This, their family. This is the nation of Israel. They got enough problems from other nations. Why kill themselves? But you know, the Christian church is pretty good at this. We got enough enemies, amen? We got enough problems out there, but we end up, often killing ourselves. 
Christians are the only one that ha ones that have their firing squads in a circle. Have you noticed? <laughs> Why do we do that? Oh, I know we got to fight battles for essential things, but we're family. Well, revenge will come later, but Joab says, as God lives, 27, if you had not spoken, surely then the people would have gone away, withdrawn in the morning, each from following his brother. The NIV has it, as surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued the pursuit of their brothers until morning. The Hebrew is a little difficult here. It may be that at your word, yes, we're going to heed it. Or it may be that Joab is saying, if you hadn't started this thing this morning, we wouldn't be here now. And this is the old blame shift, right? Here's another thing to consider with conflict resolution. We usually don't get very far if we say, you know, if you wouldn't have started this in the first place. You know how kids do this in the backseat of the car? He's touching me. He's touching me. You're like, stop it. He started it. No, he started it. No, he started it. He started it. You say, I'm going to finish it. <laughs> I brought you into this world. And I can take you out. <laughs> and so Joab, here's another point. Some of us need to get some trumpets. Joab blew the trumpet and all the people halted and pursued Israel no longer, nor did they continue to fight anymore. They sell, at some Christian stores, they have these trumpets. If you find yourself in a fight, you just blow it. I'm just kidding. They don't have such a thing, but it sounds like a pretty good idea. Don't you think it would halt a lot of fights? What if you went into your kid's room and you heard them fighting, went in there with a trumpet? Wouldn't that be awesome? Everybody would freak out. Those of you who are inventors out there, you might want to consider that as an idea. Abner and his men then went through the Arabah all that night. So they crossed the Jordan walking all morning and came to Mahanaim. So back to their original location, Saul's guys or Ishbosheth's guys. Joab returned from following Abner when he gathered all the people together. 19 of David's servants besides Asahel were missing. So David's side had 20 dead. David's not part of this, neither is Ishbosheth. The servants of David had struck down many of Benjamin and Abner's men so that 360 men died. In the end, David lost 20. Saul's side lost 360. And this is a sign of things to come because David is going to get stronger and Ishbosheth is going to get weaker. So for every one man that fell on David's side, 18 fell on Ishbosheth's side. That's probably why Abner's asking for a truce when he does. And they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in, note it, Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men went all night until the day dawned at Hebron. They returned back to base camp, if you will. But first they stopped in a place called Bethlehem and buried a man named Asahel. Some 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, there was a miracle birth. That wasn't the only thing that happened in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was David's hometown. He was anointed at Bethlehem. Bethlehem is at the core of the story of the book of Ruth. And Bethlehem is the place where Asahel is buried. It's also the burial place of Rachel right in that area. And it's the place where Jesus was born in the house of bread. I would like you to turn all the way to the book of Hebrews and we're done. Hebrews chapter 2. Let's look at some things about our great king who was born in Bethlehem to deal with all the conflict, all the problems, Hebrews chapter 2. And the question is, will he be your king? Here's what it says of this great king who was born in Bethlehem. Verse 9, Hebrews 2. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus because of the suffering of death, Hebrews 2.9, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Since then, skip down to verse 14, the children share in flesh and blood, we are human. He himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same. He became human. 
that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. It interests me that Asahel is buried in Bethlehem, a place where Christ enters the scene to save us. And, you know, when we put someone in a grave, it's a difficult situation because the questions inevitably come. Will I ever see them again? Is this an ending point or a doorway? Is there hope beyond the grave? Is this life just about whatever amount of years you get and it's over? And Bethlehem says, no, it's not over. There's a God who loves you, who entered into our pain, who was born on a starry night in Bethlehem. And his name, Emmanuel, means God with us. For all the messes that we create, all the conflicts that we have, all the battles to really decide who's going to be our king. Is it Jesus or Ishbosheth or somebody else? Hopefully we can decide as the church, you are my king, I'm going to follow you. And I think when we do that, the world changes. Father, help us in these areas of our lives. As we look at this account, we see the struggle. You've taught us to pray, Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done. Help us, Lord, as we've been looking at the kingdom of God to realize that we have a part to play. We can be people who advance the kingdom, who uh, reflect the kingdom and its values. Lord, thank you for your patience with us when we fail, when we get in conflicts with one another, when we don't reflect very well the king and the kingdom. But thank you that you're doing a work in all of our hearts. Let it start in our families, our marriages. Let it ripple out to our churches and let it ripple out to our city, our state, and our country. Thank you that there's so many wonderful servants of the King here at Living Truth who have taken that mantle seriously and they want to follow you. Help us in our areas of weakness, Father. Help us in areas where we fall short. Thank you for your grace, which is more than sufficient. But help us to move forward by grace as well. And with your head and heart bowed, if you've not met the King, you've not known his saving grace, you're not sure you're in the kingdom. Trust in him and him alone today. Something like this with your head and heart bowed. Jesus, be my king. Be my savior, be my Lord, be my friend. Lead me and guide me, Lord. I want to know you. I want to know the power of the kingdom. I want to even know what it means to suffer with you. Thank you for your death on the cross. I believe you died for me. Your resurrection, I believe you rose. I repent of following my own kingdom and I follow you. Lord, for those who are recommitting their lives, for the precious saints who are just wanting to get closer to you today, may you bless them, may you encourage them, may you strengthen them, may you be their refuge and their strength. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen.